right, today we begin a study through the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And uh, this is going to be a rich and challenging uh, but really rewarding book uh, to study and to read. And I hope you're blessed as we make your way through it. Um, and uh, he is in the first chapter sort of setting forth many themes that will be more fully developed uh, later in the book. So let's consider just a, a little bit of the rich truth that we find here. Uh, let's think first about the Word. The Gospel of John begins with uh, one of the most profound verses in the whole Bible. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is hard to overstate the depth and the richness of the truths conveyed in this one verse. There is no way we could plumb the depths of it here, but there are some truths worth noting, so let's consider some of them. First, John begins his gospel with the same three words uh, that begin uh, the Bible in the book of Genesis, in the beginning. He is deliberately taking the reader's mind back to a time when only God was. That is on purpose. He takes your mind to that place, and then he introdu introduces you to the Word. Who is the Word here? Well, we learn as we keep reading that the Word is Jesus Christ, uh, God the Son. He says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's clearly a reference linking the Word to Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. So, when John opens his gospel saying, in the beginning was the word, he is making an extremely bold claim. Jesus was when only God was. When only God was, Jesus was. God the Son was. He, he'll reiterate this in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. And he'll state it in even bolder language in verse 3. All things were made through him. The word existed in the beginning when only God was, and he was the agent in creation itself. So secondly, John reveals that our God is a triune God. He is a trinity. We begin to see that in the second phrase of verse 1. So we had already said in the beginning was the word, and the second phrase is this, and the word was with God, with God. God. Well, that implies some kind of distinction. What distinction is he talking about? John is here setting forth the distinction between God the Son, who took on flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, and God the Father. He will introduce the Holy Spirit in this chapter as well. See verses 32 and 33. Why is this important? Because unless God is triune, he cannot be our Savior. For one reason, unless God is triune, he cannot himself uh, be both the executioner of the judgment against our sin, God the Father, and the bearer of the judgment against our sin, God the Son. But John understands that if all he said was this, that Jesus was in the beginning with God, then the reader might get the impression that Jesus himself was somehow less than God. There's God and then there's the Word who was with him. Which is why thirdly, he makes it clear that 
just as the Word was with God in the beginning, third phrase, it is also true that the Word was God. Now, some of your Jehovah's Witnesses friends uh, or visitors will try to dispute this word, claiming it should be translated the word was a God, meaning Jesus was sort of divine-like, but he wasn't fully Jehovah God. Well, without going into too much detail, suffice it to say two things. One, clearly they don't know Greek grammar. To think that um, the word was a God is a legitimate translation of this verse. And two, uh, they clearly overlook the fact that John, a faithful Jewish monotheist, that is, believing uh, on only one God, see Deuteronomy 6, 5, he would never claim that there was another God <laughs> in addition to the one true God. John really does uh, say what he appears to say. The Word was God. This will be a huge theme throughout John's Gospel. He will emphasize more than any of the other Gospel writers the deity of Jesus Christ. Fourthly and finally, even uh, in verse 14, when John declares that the Word also became flesh for us, he says it in such a way so as to again highlight that it was God becoming flesh for us. When he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek, the Greek word uh, translated dwelt there. Uh, is the word which can also be translated tabernacled. Now, clearly you can see why they went with the word dwelt. Uh, we don't use the word tabernacled. It's probably not even in the dictionary as a verb like that. But John was using a word uh, here that would make the original readers think back to the tabernacle or tent of meeting in the Old Testament where God met or dwelt with men. John is saying that when the Word became flesh, he was the living embodiment of the Old Testament tabernacle. He was truly Emmanuel, God with us. Well, let's think next about the Lamb of God. While John does begin his gospel with deep reflections on who Jesus is, he equally desires to communicate along with that why Jesus came and what Jesus came to do. As early as verses 12 and 13, John indicates that Jesus came to provide a way for people to have, uh, as he puts it, the right to become children of God, being born again by the will of God. But it is through the words of John the Baptist later in the chapter that we get the first glimpse of how Jesus would do that. Twice John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, verses 29 and 36. And in verse 29, he specifically refers to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Putting these things together, it is clear that John is foreshadowing in this very first chapter that Jesus came to take away our sin and give us the right to become children of God by uh, giving himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins fulfilling those Old Testament sacrifices and doing what they never really could do, Hebrews 10.4. When the Old Testament Israelites observed the Passover, they were to sacrifice a lamb who was without blemish, Exodus 12.5. John is showing that Jesus was now come as the truly perfect lamb of God who really could fully and finally take away our sins by his sacrifice. 
Thirdly and finally, heaven came down. The last noteworthy observation uh, that we will note here is what Jesus says to Nathanael in the final verse of the chapter. In verse 51, Jesus tells Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, Nathanael and the, also the original readers of that day would have immediately known that Jesus said that to make an allusion to Jacob's dream in Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, Jacob is given a dream from the Lord, and in that dream we are told, quote, in Genesis 28, 12, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So that, that, that sounds familiar to what John is saying, or what Jesus is saying here in John 1. Jesus quotes this language of angels of God ascending and descending in John 1.51, but instead of it being on a ladder reaching up to heaven, as in Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, they are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The situation is no longer a ladder reaching to heaven that we must climb, but God himself who has now come down the ladder to us that we might be saved. And it's also instructive to remember the rest of Jacob's dream in Genesis 28 where he is promised, as had Abraham and Isaac before him in Genesis 28:14, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What a promise to bring about the blessing, uh, bring about blessing to all the families of the earth. And he further promises in Genesis 28:15, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. When the Word who was God became flesh to tabernacle among us and be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was doing what was promised to Jacob that day. He had come to be the one in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that is John chapter 1.